Hello, old friends. This is Mike Dawson, and I welcome you to the Silent Pianist Podcast, where I interview curious people that do extraordinary things. Today's guest is guitar virtuoso Jamie Glazer. He's best known as the guitarist with violinist Jean-Luc Ponty. Jamie is one of the great guitarists of our time. He's recorded and performed with Chick Corea, Manhattan Transfer, drummer Lenny White, and Brian Adams. Glazier recently recorded and toured with John Anderson and Jean-Luc Ponty as part of the Anderson Ponty Band. And he's just returned from an extensive tour with Jean-Luc Ponty himself as the legendary 1970s-1980s lineup returned to perform much of Ponty's catalog from the so-called Atlantic years. And you certainly have heard Jamie play guitar on classic television themes such as Seinfeld and Married with Children. I recently had a conversation with Jamie after he completed a long day of composing and recording at his studio in Utah. We talked at length about his life and his art. Enjoy this conversation with guitar virtuoso Jamie Glazer. I'm just going to see if I can, you know, always find uh, interesting people to talk to. And uh, I'm so honored that you uh, uh, agreed to take a little bit of time to see me do this. Mike, it's so- my pleasure. You know, I had a, a radio show for a year and I started to get involved with all the people doing voiceovers and all kinds of stuff. It got out of hand. So I was sitting here, of course it wasn't, was not live, um, so I recorded, we had a lot of the people from my page, to, you know, Terry Wallman and Steve Ruff and other people interviewed, and um, it, was, it was great fun, I was basically trying to help other people promote their stuff, you know, um, but it, for me, it just got to be just six, eight hours of editing before I put it on the air, and it, it ended up on YouTube, and people were writing all the time, and I, I ran out of time, so... I'm glad that you're taking over the lead here. <laughs> well, you know, I, I noticed that right away, you know, because I'm such a stickler for editing and, and making sure that things sound good and good mm-hmm. levels and, you know, nice mixture of music and interviews. And I'm, I'm doing it way beyond music. Uh, you know, like I interviewed the filmmaker and then I've uh, taken the time to uh, uh, book a couple of NASA astronauts oh, cool. and I've got... Uh, you know, so I've got all kinds of things because my whole nerd thing is coming out of the woodwork here a little bit. So it's <laughs> going to be a lot of fun. No nerd. So, so we'll, 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 well, I will I will drive off one bridge at a time here with this stuff. You, you're right. It takes a lot of time. And I I wonder if I've bitten off a little bit more than, than I uh, am willing to chew at a time. But we'll give it a try for a year and see I, what happens. I bet you'll so. do great. I, I know you will. You, you'll make it happen. <laughs> Right, man. Well, you inspire me so much, Jamie. So, uh, Jamie Glazer, welcome to the Silent Pianist. Thank you. Hey, for Mike, how you me. doing? I'm I'm doing just so wonderful. Uh, I'm just so excited because it wasn't that many uh, weeks ago that I saw you perform here in Texas with uh, Jean Luc Pani, and that I know we could talk just about that particular relationship, but. Tell me, what was it like for you to be playing that particular 
era of his music uh, in this uh, time, you know, the second decade of the 21st century, was it a, like a real deja vu sense for you? Well, actually, no. I mean, it, it, what was interesting was when I was first introduced, I was at Berkeley College, and um, Steve Smith, who you most of the people out there may know more as being the drummer for Journey, uh, we were classmates, and he came to me and said that he was joining uh, a French violinist, uh, and he wanted to know if I wanted to join the band. So I called my father. Uh, I'm from New York, as you know, or people out there may not know. And my father flatly refused. He said, you are not leaving Berkeley. You're, not, you're going to get your bachelor's of music degree. And if they want you now, they'll want you then. Uh, if they want you now, they'll want you later. So he was right. <laughs> um, I did get an opportunity that the year I graduated, uh, Alan Holsworth left the band and I got an audition and ended up in the band. Uh, I was very green, Mike. I, I had a Berkeley training and a degree in composition. Uh, I didn't know any licks. I, I just kind of fell into this thing uh, with mostly from the knowledge, you know. And um, so I didn't really even know what I was getting into um, at the time. Um, I had just, I, I was actually turned on to what they, I guess they called fusion by my uh, teacher, my English teacher. Uh, she, she had sent me out uh, as an assignment to be a critic, to learn how to be a critic. And she, uh, Berkeley College got tickets, and they sent me to a show by Chick Corea and Return to Forever. And the front table, about three feet away from the amplifiers, and uh, that night was uh, the, the night my life changed. Needless to say, uh, that... what. And you, and this was a school assignment. Yes, it was. I mean, it, he, it, we went through, you know, the, the classes taught you how to be a journalist, how to do literary things, uh, and this was to learn how to be a music critic. So um, on, on their dime, they sent me. And I remember, uh, you know, my dad was a, was a uh, pop songwriter. He had written for Frank Sinatra and Nat King Cole and Sarah Vaughan, or people I guess you would think of nowadays as more on the jazz side of pop, but... Um, he he instilled in me. I, I mean, I thought that uh, Carousel, and he wrote a really he, uh, yeah. He and your father wrote this incredible book that I actually oh, have really? a copy of, writing lyrics that make Thank sense you. in that, dollars. I, I have a copy somewhere uh, somewhere here too. But um, uh, well, that's a it, famous it, book, it, man. I mean, it, it I saw it on so uh, on Amazon for a thousand dollars. If he were alive, he he would faint. Um, but he's. Uh, <laughs> You know, what we thought was jazz was Hello, Dolly, or Mame, or all these kinds of songs we used to play, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree, because they didn't follow what the Beatles were doing, they didn't follow the rock stuff, and I didn't really know what jazz was. And so when I went to the Chick Corea concert, um, about 10, 15 minutes in, I had uh, I had that moment, and I said... I am going to play with the guys I'm seeing up here. And I, by the way, I, I'd never heard of any of them. In fact, I remember making fun of Chick Corea's name at Berkeley. I, I compared it to diarrhea. I mean, that's, that's really how much I didn't know. And I, uh, 
I sat there, Bill Cox. Didn't know about my. I knew nothing, nothing. I mean, I knew my scales, but that's about it. So Bill Connors was the guitar player. Lenny White was on drums. Stanley Clark on bass, of course, in Chick Corea. And I sat in front of Bill Connors and I watched him with his Les Paul and a Marshall and this, what was supposed to be, a, it, it was at the Jazz Workshop in Berkeley, uh, in uh, Boston. And uh, I sat there and I was like, I need to play this music. I need to find out what this music is about. And I vowed to play with every one of these musicians. So at the end of the first show, uh, I, I was truly overtaken. I mean, if you hear about someone who just found a new religion or whatever, I mean, that was my born-again moment, you know. And I, uh, I asked the owner, who I had actually been on his uh, case for a while to try to let my band play as an opening act, but he wouldn't, um, if I could stay for the second show. And he said, sure, stay for the second show. So I stayed for the second show, and I watched the whole thing, and I was covered in sweat, and I never perspired. I just, something happened to me. And uh, uh, for those of you who have never been to Boston, there's a thing called the T or the trolley, and um, it stops at 1 a.m., or it did in those days. It stopped at 1 a.m. So I walk outside, and there is a full-blown blizzard, and it's minus 4 degrees outside. Uh, it's about 1.30 in the morning, and my, uh, my apartment was around 3 to 5 miles away. And uh, I began to walk. I walked all the way home. I didn't feel the cold. I didn't get frostbitten. My head was completely into this new dream I had. And that started everything. The next day, I started my first fusion band, which had uh, the very famous Rich Gibbs. I'm sure a lot of you know who Rich Gibbs is, the composer. He was with Ongo Boingo, and then he went on to Major Motion Picture, the Tracy Allman Show, The Simpsons, all kinds of stuff. Um... And uh, my brother on drums and a wonderful bass player who's now a CEO of Sony, uh, Dave DeCenzo. And we played all over. We are playing. I just started to write what I thought was fusion music. And um, so this journey started that day. And in fact, uh, without talking your ears off, everybody, my dream came true. I ended up in the Chicoria Electric Band for a year and three quarters. Um, I did sessions and lots of stuff with Stanley Clark, and he's a dear friend. I was with Lenny White's band for two years, and uh, uh, that was one of the sweetest two years ever when I worked with him and Shaka Khan and all the rest. And Bill Connors, the guitar player, opened for Jean-Luc Ponty in the 70s and, and the early 80s. So it's just, you know, a lot of these self-help people and meditation to tell you focus, what you focus on becomes a reality, and I was 100% that, an example of that. I think your question was, what was it like to do this again, right? <laughs> well, you know, in a way, but you know, it's such an interesting, you know, uh, journey uh, to go from that, uh, that very first, you know, formative night seeing Chick Corea when he was, I'm sure it was very early in the Return to Forever uh, uh, canon, if you will, and then to get this gig because of Steve Smith just being a cool dude and saying, you need to uh, 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 get uh, familiar with Jean-Luc Ponty and, and uh, you know, take over the mantle from Alan Holdsworth. But I suspect that nothing is ever as simple as it seems. Did you, did you really change the way you, you 
you practiced and played your instrument because of that particular concert because you were thinking more yes. musically as opposed to you know think, thinking like oh I I just got to know my modes I got to know my progressions and yes I mean the, the thing is that uh, I think growing up I mean I, my first concert was Black Sabbath and uh, I remember yeah I remember being on the train I li- grew up in Long Island New York and. We were going to the Palladium in New York City, and I saw Black Sabbath, Jethro Tull, and then after I saw Hendrix, and so I was really into rock and roll, you know. I, meanwhile, my father's writing standards and listening to standards in the house, so I had no uh, knowledge of Miles Davis or anything to do with jazz rock or even bebop, for that matter. So at Berkeley, you know, like every other student, I went through the real book and started to learn from my tests some songs. And, uh, you know, I, I saw that 90% of the school was playing Blue Bossa, so I learned it. I mean, I did whatever they did. Um, but after that, uh, that concert, my view was that I was going to emulate this Chikoria band that's returned to forever. And indeed, um, this band that I put together was called Yarbles, which was named after, uh, in Clockwork Orange, Yarbles yeah, Yarbles was the word for testicles. And so we played yes. <laughs> as technically as we could, as loudly as we could. Um, my brother still, you know, my brother is a drummer, great drummer. And he uh, he still blames me for putting my amplifier behind his head at the clubs. Um, I was so loud. It, it was shockingly loud. It's just, Mike, it was just off the charts. But we uh, eventually uh, played enough that a very strange uh, thing started to happen in that uh, we decided that we needed to go to New York with the band. This was my Berkeley band. And when we got there, a producer of Miles Davis, whose name is Tio Macero, very famous producer, he was interested in my band. So he took his money and produced a demo uh, and went up to uh, whatever label the Brecker brothers were on and tried to get me a record deal. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out. But um, we started to do more and more. And before you knew it, the band that I started was playing at CBGB's. You know, you know what, that, what that club is? So, Okay, so, so yeah. for the well, listeners who may be too yeah. young to know or never knew, CBGB's was a place where punk rock was pretty much done and born. And so here would be my fusion band. Uh, on, we would go from Boston. we go to school from like 9 to 5. We'd get in a van. We'd drive and be in New York City in time for a midnight show. Um, and we would be either opening for the Ramones or Deborah Harry, the Blondie, or Milk and Cookies, or... Um, trying right. to think of the couple of other famous, really giant people that came became enormous. Um, of course, I had a crush on Blondie already, but um, every every person did. And so this was a very weird thing that the owner of this punk rock club didn't really know what we were doing and loved us. So he wanted us. We ended up on the CBGB compilation album. We were, uh, we you know, Daryl Hall and John Oates used to come, and they were our fans. And then we had uh, um, Andy Warhol. One time he came in, and during a solo of mine, he walked out, and everybody in the club walked out. 
I mean, oh, every man. single human being except at the bar left. Everybody that followed Andy Warhol. So we had a great experience. But you know, I, I followed in that thing. So I know I really don't know how it all happened with Ponty because my brother played me a record with him on it. I remember going into my bedroom in Long Island. He said, listen to this, listen to this. It's an electric violinist. And I remember saying, I don't want to hear any violinist playing. I remember that. I mean, I didn't even know. It's crazy. Um, and it ended up to be the sweetest thing that will probably ever be in my life. You know, uh, I did get a call. Uh, Alan Holsworth decided to leave the road. Um, Jean-Luc actually called me on the phone himself and uh, invited me to audition. Um, my audition really was uh, basically sight reading. I had to sight read the Enigmatic Ocean Suite um, with never hearing it ever, um, and I did. And then, three days later, Jean-Luc called on the phone and told me that I was in the band and that they were getting flight arrangements to go to Ohio. Um, so I arrive in Ohio, never been on, well, I was on the road with a show band when I was 17, but that was all in New York, never done anything giant like this. And he was doing 10,000 seaters at that time. And, uh, <clears throat> I show up at the lobby and in walks Alan Zavad, you know, Alan, right? And, yes. and. Yes, I saw it with Frank Zappa. Okay, That's so right. it, was, it was Alan, and it was Ralph Armstrong on bass, and Steve Smith. And I'm sitting in the, on the couch of the Holiday Inn, and uh, the three of them walk over to me. They remember, because I just auditioned a week before or so. They said, uh, hey, what are you doing here? Who are you playing with? And I said, well, I'm playing with you guys. And they, Jean-Luc had never told the band. They, they, they never told, oh, never, never said a word to them. Right. And that night, that same night, uh, I walked upon the stage and I heard this announcement that, well, I don't want to cry in your radio show. It's like Atlantic Records proudly presents Jean-Luc Ponty and his band. And that was it. It was from that moment till this very day. That was the moment. And uh, it was an amazing experience. I mean... Just amazing, and we, of course, in those days, we we were kind of rock stars. We had we had a hundred thousand dollar advance or hundred fifty thousand dollar advance from Atlantic Records for touring. We were in limos all the time. We had the girls. We had the we, the whole thing. We we, we you know um, there was no difference between. And we were on the pop charts. We were on Solid Gold. We were on television. We we're on you know every other week. We're doing another TV show. Um, it was magnificent and. And just amazing, just amazing.
You know, the thing that I think about, uh, you know, when I think about when I heard you guys playing on that live record that in, the, in the 70s and I was in college, and it, it kind of gave me chills because I was going, this is a fusion group that oh, yeah. we're, we're was in the, top in the 40. charts. And that was so, yeah, it was so unusual to, you know, for me. Uh, I mean, I guess I, guess I heard Chick Corea doing light as a feather you know doing spain and stuff like that but you know to hear you know that those compositions and i was at the time in school and i was studying you know kind of the music maybe in a in a smaller degree than what you were doing but what struck me was just the creativity in that particular group of musicians that you were a part of and i think it was a unique time back then I don't know what it was or what it is. Even now, I think about it is like, I think groups were allowed to experiment, you know, that were on you know big labels with big distribution deals, and I think we don't have that in in the same degree as as it was. Well, we, we surely don't have it with ago. with big labels. Do but you, I mean, if you talk to an indie musician, they they pretty. I mean, they can make a music sitting on a toilet now. They can do whatever they want, but. Um, in those days, it was, was the CEOs and the producers that the record companies hired. I mean, Ahmed Erdogan was the reason why we were signed. And later on, when I was a member of Manhattan Transfer, I don't know if people remember that band, uh, it was Ahmed Erdogan again. And uh, uh, when we were signed with Lenny White to Elektra, it was Don Mizell. These were all fantastic music people. Um, they weren't, uh, they, they were still corporations, but the corporations put people who were musical, uh, in, in, in large positions, you know, and so they were looking for something new. And also, also out of the sixties where people were experimenting with, with all kinds of music, psychedelics and progress, prog rock, of course, had a big influence, uh, on the music at this point. But you know, we never went out of our way to uh, to do anything, and and, and Jean Luc's band uh, is very very um, scored. You know, we all got charts. Uh, we the only time we uh, we we were free exactly. was during our solo solos, but everything else was orchestrated. And the thing was that we knew that Jean Luc. Look, there was a lot of things happening. Jean Luc was was and still is a very handsome man. He writes uh, beautiful melodies, which is being a composer for a living, I mean, a lot of people think of me as a guitarist, but I make 99% of my living composing, is is that melody is very important. Now, the other fusion bands that were happening, no matter who they were, they were all about technique, playing fast, playing loud, whatever, and they didn't touch the, the, the people the same way. I mean, you go to Return to Forever concert, it was 80% male guitar players or drummers or whatever, keyboard players, that wanted us to be excited by the technique. They go to Brand X, they go to Jeff Lorber, they go whatever, 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 and that was always the same thing. It was like a Berkeley class. But when, when it was Jean-Luc, it was like 80% girls. And we, we were riding that whole thing, you know? We, we, we all wanted to be, I mean, Rayford Griffin uh, in the second portion after Steve Smith, he's all about fashion and, and being looking good. And, you know, I, I mean, we, we, we don't think like 
I'm not telling you that music wasn't paramount. It's just that we knew we could take care of the music, and that sounds pretty egotistical, but it this band, but particularly the band that you saw, which Wally Minko and Rayford and Barron and myself and, yes. of course, Mr. Ponty, that band, I mean, I'm closer to those guys than I think I am uh, all of my family except for my brother. I mean, it, there there is a history of years on the road, of recording several albums together, of being stuck in airports, of, of doing uh, stuff I can't even talk about here. Um, and so when we started this tour, which was your original question 20 minutes ago, um, this was like, well, for lack of a better word, Mike, an enormous gift, a Christmas, a Hanukkah gift. You know, this was... This wasn't a reunion to us. This was us ready to play Jean-Luc's music again, to thrill the audience. We were very aware that our audience age would bring their children and their grandchildren. We were ready for all the new people. We, uh, we didn't think much about it, except that we, were gonna, we had the same thing we had in the, in the 80s and late 70s. We're going to go out there and be like nobody else. And, uh, you know, before we go on stage, we do this football thing. We all put our hands on top of each other and do rah-rah. We've been doing that for 40 years. Nothing's changed. We just, and we don't think we're any older either, which is funny. I mean, the, the first night we played, I remember it was Seattle. Wally Minko, the keyboard player, he called me over. I thought something was wrong. He says, hey, Jamie. I was like, yeah, what's up? He says, what happened to the audience? And I said, what do you mean? He said, they're all old. Right. And, and really, <laughs> what was so funny was we don't think we're different at all. You know, <laughs> none of us. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It, anyway, it was spectacular. Uh, we're hoping to do more in 2018, by the way, but I'm not permitted to talk about it. But we are, uh, we are talking about it. Well, I, I, I can't wait to uh, uh, learn more about that uh, as it, as it becomes uh, uh, more uh, real to you guys, uh, you know the thing that I was, you know, really interested in. You've kind of touched on it, touched upon it a little bit. Um, your dad clearly yes. is probably one of the biggest mentors you ever had, and he and he was a Tin Pan Alley composer, uh, quoting you from your own bio. Can you tell me what it was like growing up with your dad? Tell me what it was like uh, uh, growing up. Well, thank up you for asking about that. Um, I, am, uh, I wish I could be half of what my, my dad was. I mean, he was uh, truly amazing. And he, he wrote like every night. He had uh, brilliant partners. And I guess by the time I was 10 or 11 years old-ish, uh, on Mondays, we would drive from Long Island to Manhattan, about a 30-mile drive, and we would go to the Brill Building, which is the, the main building for selling songs in Tin Pan Alley. And we would do just like you read in all the books. We would go office to office. They all knew my father, and he'd say, you know, uh, there was I remember one guy who was super famous, had all, most of the songs that Frank Sinatra had first cut. His name was Lucky Carl. And uh, we'd, we'd knock on Lucky Carl's door, no appointment, you know. Uh, my dad's partner would meet us, the pianist, and uh, he'd say, hey, Lucky, we wrote a new song. I think, think it would be great for Sinatra. And then 
Jerry Solomon, his partner, would sit down at the piano, and my father and he would sing. And uh, if Lucky Carl liked it, he'd send us downstairs, which was below the first building, to a studio called Associated Recording Studios. Associated Recording Studios was the studio in the Brill Building. And they, in those days, the publisher would pay for the demo. This was amazing because the studio musicians stayed there all day long. They just waited for publishers to send the songs down. That's where I first met uh, Tony Matola and uh, a whole bunch of the top studio guys. And in fact, my father had me uh, sit down with them when I was 12 and uh, do my first studio work with them. But I think that the story that would be most interesting to your listeners might be this one. We, we had just uh, done a demo of one of my father's songs, and the engineer turned to us. He said, uh, I want to show you my new record. It's going to be a number one hit. This is the engineer, right? So I, we, we didn't know he was a musician or whatever. And he, he puts on the tape, and it goes... Anyway, the song was, I'm coming to take you... They're coming to take me away. Remember that song? They're coming to take me away, ha ha, he he, ho ho, to the funny farm where life is beautiful. All anyway, yeah. why he, is, he's playing why? this? He's playing this on a tape, right? And the way the way he's getting that that drum sound oh was he was That's using crazy. a second recorder using the flange, right? So so I got my first uh, look at what a flanging sound was, and he kept splicing the tape, okay. you know, and. My father, I remember he said to the engineer, Jerry, he says, you're nuts, he says, right? So my father's writing love songs for Frank Sinatra. And this guy, they're coming to take me over to the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time. Right. And, and anyway, I'll be damned. About four weeks later, we're driving. Same trip. Yeah, same trip to the Bill Building. And on WABC, ABC Radio in New York, the... Cousin Brucey, who is the, the guy there who introduced the Beatles in New York, he announces this song, and before you know it, it was number one. Uh, to your question, my dad was a, a, a perfectionist, in, in the, and you know his book, he had his ways of doing things. And, but indeed, I wrote hundreds of songs with him, and we had our first song together released when I was 13 years old, a song called I Am Curious, and uh, my dad walked in with this song. I wrote the music on guitar, and you know, we, we sang it for some publisher. Uh, it was TRO, uh, which was Famous Music Corporation. And um, my father walks in with this record by a lady named Carol Strom, and he puts the 45 on, and there is this song we wrote with a full Los Angeles Hollywood orchestra. I'm a boy from Long Island. <clears throat> And he said to me, he hugged me, he said, I love you. He said, you know, this is going to be on the radio. I, I couldn't believe it, you know. And the next day we're in the car and there's our song on the radio. I, I was actually, <coughs> I was in the music union. Um, I, I joined when I was 12 and a half. Um, my father took me to the New York <laughs> Union, which was all like, uh, they're not mafia, but everybody was Italian, so... Uh, there was a guy who was the president. His name was Vince Rosito. And my father walked in. He said, hey, you got to let my kid join the union, you know, whatever. And, and so Rosito says, hey, have, you, have your kid play something. 
So I got out the guitar and I played uh, the standard Moonlight in Vermont. You know, you know that song? So, you know, I, I don't even know if I could still remember. It was like... I played that, and I look over at Vince, and his mouth is open. He said, well, where did he learn to do that? You know, so he told him about Joe Breeze, who's a guitar player on the Ed Sullivan Show. And uh, Vince got out the contract, and I signed up with the local 802 in New York, and like three weeks later, my father introduced me to Stephen Scott Orchestras, which was the premier uh, casual office doing weddings, bar mitzvahs, corporate work. And I began to work. I was I had a wallet full of money by the time I was 13. And uh, I'm very grateful. So I was writing with my dad from the age of about 9 or 10. We had hundreds of songs. Um, we also had a children's record company, uh, educational record company. Ses- my songs were on Sesame Street and Captain Kangaroo uh, with my dad. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, were, we were completely connected uh, musically. You know, the thing that, that fascinates me, you know, with what your story is about, you know, uh, writing these songs with your dad. Now, what, was he the lyricist and you were writing the music uh, and, and, the, and the melody? So that was a real partnership. You were kind of like a, a father and son, uh, you know. Uh, uh, yes, yes. Along those lines. I mean, in, indeed, Mike, he, he was always kind of teaching me. Um, his big, I think his greatest lesson to me from a musical standpoint was that the music needs to marry the lyric. Or in some cases, if you're a film writer, the picture. There are a lot of people these days that don't do this. They write a sad song and they write it in you know, like a polka for it. I mean, he, he um, that was very, very important that I learned to marry. He also, he wanted me to become a good accompanist. Um and we used to drive to New York, and he would sing songs, and I'd be in the front of the car and accompany him. Uh, he would tell me, you know, don't play over my words, this kind of stuff. Yeah, he was kind of always teaching me. I'm kind of making him sound mean, but he, no way. He was always loving. And then um, when I, would, I, I began to write my own lyrics, um, I don't know, maybe at 11 or 12 or 13 years old, and I would take them to him after dinner, and he would correct them. And he'd tell me why this wouldn't work, you know. Um, it's, it's funny because he, he's just, he guided me through, through everything. Um, it, it, to the point where, before he passed away, he, he actually passed away on my birthday, um, which people feel sad about, I guess. But I think it's uh, incredible, actually, that, that he prom- what, what happened, he was, had cancer and he was in a coma and... Before he went to coma, he said to me, I will tell you I love you and happy birthday on your birthday. So the morning of my birthday, I got a call from my brother Randy. He says, Dad wants to talk to you. And uh, I was shocked because the last I heard, I was going to get a flight to New York to hopefully catch him before he died. And I was in Los Angeles at the time, living in Los Angeles. And uh, the phone rings and there's my father. And he says, I love you so much. Happy birthday. And he hangs up the phone. And then the phone rings. And my brother calls. He says, Dad just died. It, it's just, yeah, I mean, it's, you hear these stories about people on Christmas and Hanukkah and 
you know, but that's exactly how it happened. It was probably wow. I, two minutes later, two minutes, he, he passed away in my, in my brother's arms. But um, he kept his word, you know, he kept his word. And I, of course, I uh, was do making good money. I was doing uh, a ton of Hispanic studio work, a lot of t television work, jingles, movies. I had a lot of money. I was living a high life in Los Angeles. And I could leave anytime I want, go to New York. And I, I told my father, I said, you know, I, I want to come visit you. And he said, no, no. He says, you need to be in L.A. making music, right? And, and finally, I convinced him like a month before he passed away that I was, you know, I'm not going to listen to him. I'm coming to New York. But even, even when I was standing by him, he, he voiced that. He says, you know, you, you need to be in Los Angeles. That's where you live. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine, which, of course, was his way of protecting me. But, yeah. Sure, that, that's what your dad, that's what our dads do. You know, they, they always look out for their, uh, their kids and, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're always sensitive to that. But clearly, he was probably the, the, the greatest influence of, in your life. Uh, well, you, you, you know, and I'm, I'm just uh, stunned by uh, the, the story that you're conveying to me. You know, you, you were talking about mentors, though. When you talk about other mentors, you, you uh, had alluded to... You know, uh, Jean-Luc Ponty, I'm sure he had a had an influence on you personally as well as musically. But there was another man that, that you had mentioned uh, that I wanted to ask you about. So tell me what it was like uh, uh, when you were in school and you were uh, 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 being uh, uh, acquainted with uh, William Levitt. I sure can, Mike. And, and you know... Um I, you know, this is thank, thankfully, and I'm so grateful. I always love doing interviews, and I especially look forward to this with you because you're such a tremendous musician and person. I know um, we listen to your CD, which we love here, and I try to uh, tell people about it because you're a, a great talent. And so, this kind of, you know, I, I get interviewed by all kinds of people. Uh, often, you know, I have a PR company. I mean, I don't have a, I mean, I work with a PR Thank company. So, I mean, I get called by metaphysical magazines, all kinds of stuff. Sometimes I don't have no idea why I'm even being interviewed. But it's such a pleasure to, to, to speak to you because I think that uh, your listeners would, since they, they respect you, <laughs> they might uh, sure. get the emotion from this rather than another musician talking about their bios and their accomplishments, which I, I hate that, you know. People ask me all the time, well, what did you do? What did you do? I tell them, here's my website, go look. Because I, I, I know other musicians will rattle off every freaking thing they did all week, but I, I can't, you know, aside from me writing to you on Facebook that I was up for 16 hours. But um, ask you a question. Uh, for those people who don't know, Berklee College of Music is in Boston, uh, it's an enormous school now. It's a Boston Conservatory has uh, combined with it. Um, but it's not Berkeley in California, not affiliated with that. And Berkeley College was one of the only schools in the entire world that recognized guitar. Um, that's not to say guitar wasn't taught at Juilliard and North Texas State, but it was always classical. So you could you could not learn jazz or Hispanic or... Latino music or fusion or rock or anything right. uh, at any other school. So Berkeley was where I was interested to go. It was also very, very career-oriented. So a lot of networking, a lot of movers and shakers from there. So I was, was super glad to go to Berkeley. Um, 
so I get to the school. I've now been taking lessons and uh, since I'm nine years old, I'm already doing studio work. I'm already doing $30,000, worth of gigs a year at 16 years old. And I walk in for my audition or orientation audition and uh, the guitar teacher who is auditioning me can hardly play. I mean, he was stiff. Uh, I remember thinking, this guy doesn't play as well as my 13-year-old students. Um, which is a kind of a horrible thing to say, but I remember that day very well. And uh, anyway, I went through the audition, uh, I, and, and uh, he noticed I read very well and this and that, and we had a discussion about stuff. And he said, well, I'll be your teacher. And... Uh, I remember I walked in the hallway and I, I was like, this can't be happening. I'm at the, the greatest, what I thought was the greatest jazz rock, jazz school in the world. And here's a person teaching me that I can outplay. You know, and my ego was pretty giant then. It probably is now too, but it, at least it was pretty magnificently giant back then. So I walked around, I walked around, I walked around and I said, you know, this, I get one chance at this. I'm going to knock at the door of the chairman of guitar, the person who wrote all the books for the school, who made the guitar program, who made Berkeley famous for guitar players. And I timidly banged on 5K, which was the, the room number. And uh, this guy with like super long hair, at least to me, walks out. And I just peeked through and I said, Mr. Levitt, <laughs> Mr. Levitt, like that. And you know, I was scared, scared of my wits, to be honest with you. For it was the third day in college. I was in a new state. I mean, everything. <laughs> I was scared as crap. Mr. Levin, he says, come on in, just like that. He's a robust sitting there with a $25,000 D'Angelico, a cigarette in his mouth, and he's just at his desk, you know. He said, what can I do for you? I mean, really robust and, and energized, you know. And I said, well, I, you know, I'm Jamie Glazer. I, you know, I started to explain, and I told him about my exam. And uh, Bill Levitt, William Levitt, he says, well, why don't you sit down and play something for me? So I sat down, and I got my guitar out, and I played a couple of things. And he looked at me, he says, you know, what do you think about this? And I said, what? He says, what do you think about being my student? And it, it was like that day we talked about earlier in the, in, in the interview, like with Ponty, uh, with, with Return to Forever. I mean, this was like, like lightning. I mean, to me, like the, the guy who does everything, did everything that made the Berkeley system of guitar was going to grace me, was going to honor me by being my teacher. And I remember I sat there and I promised him, I said, Mr. Levin, I will do everything you say. I will practice so hard. I mean, it's just like, like you're talking to your father, you know? Right, right. sure. And indeed, that's what happened, Mike. He became my father, my surrogate father. He met my father. He promised my father he would take care of me. And he did from that day till the fourth year till I graduated at that school. And I got a little story about that if we have time. Oh, go right ahead. Because I, I don't usually get to tell this story. I want to hear it. All man. right, so Bill Levitt was an amazing 
instructor. We had a lot of stuff in common. He was a composer. He wanted me to not learn guitar like the people at Berkeley. That's the first thing. Because at Berkeley, if you could read some, you knew some licks, you could get your degree, your performance degree. He told me he didn't want me to play like other guitar players. Therefore, he wanted me to take composition. And compos he wanted me to treat the guitar from a compositional standpoint instead of a lick and guitar chord book person and the way everybody else did it. So I said, yes, I would do whatever he said. And then he was the first guy. He said, you know, synthesizers are the way to the future. I'm going to put you in electronic music. I know you play a little piano. I said, Mr. Levitt, I I'm a guitar player. I, don't wanna I play some piano. I don't want to learn that crappy synthesizer. He says, no, I want you to do that. Do that for me. Well, here we are. I'm 62 years old, and I make almost my entire living playing keyboards, playing synthesizers. You know, right? You're sitting there with the with the Yamaha Motif and uh, yeah, I, all I, these other. I never write on a guitar. I, I I don't think I've written a song on guitar in 20 years. But I mean, it, it's just it's all because of him. Everything, you know. So anyway, the story goes like like this. So I'm out of school, and it's the first year I'm out of school. Been studying with Bill Levitt once a week for four years, and Jean-Luc Ponty, we're at the top of the charts. And we're going to play the Berkeley Performance Center, which is the theater that's on the Berkeley property. It's actually very famous. If you, all the most famous bands, including rock bands, play at the Berkeley Performance Center. So, of course, I can't wait for Bill Levitt to see that I'm famous. And I was, you know, relatively speaking. wasn't Michael Jackson, but... We were, we were on television every day. I mean, people were ripping our shirts off to get autographs. It was a nutty time. So I went from the hotel running like a nine-year-old through the streets, Boston, to that room 5K, the fifth floor of Berkeley. I ran up the stairs. I ran up. There's an elevator, but I ran up the stairs. I couldn't wait to see Bill Levitt. But it was all because I wanted to show off, not so much that I missed him, right? I knock on the door, and I, I mean, the hug that we, the embrace was like, you know, like God was there. And I said, Bill, we're at the Berkeley Performance Center. Please call your wife, Ginger, and be my guest, you know. And his response to me was, I'm so sorry, I can't be there. Can you imagine that, Mike? I, I can imagine just about yeah. anything. So, so please consider. I can't be there. And I was like, what? you know, first of all, being a rock star, as you, as I mean, you're, you're a well-known musician, even famous, so you know there are things, you, you, your world changes, right? So I couldn't even believe my ears that he wasn't going to come to see Ponty. Forget me, you know. He said, look, he said, Ginger, that's his wife's name, or was his wife's name, he says, Ginger makes dinner for me, and I don't want to disappoint her. He says, so I can't, I wow. can't come to your concert. And, and he was so close to his wife, and they lived in a town called Framingham, which, for those people who know Boston, maybe it's a half hour from where Berkeley was. So he was going to go home. And I don't know if I was going to cry or what the heck was going to happen. But Bill Levitt says, look, I'll tell you what. Why don't I come to your sound check? 
So, I, of course, I said, of course. I was disappointed, but of course. So we get to sound check. I'm doing my sound check. Bill Levitt comes. He's on the side of the stage. And we do two songs. We did Enigmatic Ocean. And, you know, I can't remember what the other one was. But I remember it was Enigmatic Ocean. And I'm going to tell you why. So I get off the stage expecting 1,000 million percent that he was going to oogle over me. I'm his student. I'm with the, one of the most famous bands. I'm in a jazz rock band besides. I'm a Berkeley graduate. I mean, every reason, you know. Uh, <laughs> I had endorsements with musical instruments. I mean, I wasn't a student anymore. I was his student and made it big. It wasn't about him, right? And so I get off the stage expecting some adulation, some something. He says, <laughs> he says, Jamie, I need to talk to you. I'm like, okay, what? I mean, he didn't say great job. He didn't say nothing, Mike, nothing. But I need right. to talk to you. I said, okay. He says, you know in that passage where that D minor is? I said, yeah. He says, you should use this fingering. He told me to change my fingering. I did the freaking album. I did the tour for a year. He told, and I remember inside of me, I was so angry. Like, who the F are you to tell me how to finger this? And there's an added thing about this, by the way. He never picked up the guitar in four years, ever. Not, not once. The, the D'Angelico sat by his side. He never touched. I, to the, I mean, I only saw pictures of him playing with the NBC Orchestra. I don't know that he could actually play. Um, never touched the guitar. Never, ever, ever, ever. Everything was on the blackboard, and he placed my fingers places. So <laughs> I'm thinking, you... you bastard you never played the guitar you know in my head you you probably can't even play the guitar blah 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 blah, blah. and suddenly <sighs> I'm getting emotional suddenly I realized that he loved me so much <laughs> that, he, that he was going to still help me still show me the best way to do stuff I don't know if I ever, ever, ever felt that loved again in my whole life, ever. It was that moment that I, I, I it was, it was a moment that I don't know on a, on a podcast like this, if even if we had the picture going, if if I could express how how big that was, and it made me grow up. That moment, it gave me my first taste of what grateful was. You know, gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. What, what, what gratitude was. It gave me my first taste of what appreciation is. It gave me my first taste of always admiring others and never putting myself above anybody else ever. Uh, you could be proud of your accomplishments, but know that it's just, you know, that's what it is. You know, it's like everything changed. I think that the main thing, Mike, was that this love enveloped me. And it happened quick. I mean, I, I, as I said, I was super angry. I don't know if I showed it, but I, I know if my brain, was, my, you know, I'm a pretty manic kind of guy. My brain was going, going 100 miles an hour. You bastard, how could you do that, you know? And, and it didn't right, take a sure. couple of minutes. And uh, I write in my book here, The Silence, that he was like a guardian angel and... The reason why I say that is because he had a knowing 
when I looked at him, when that transformation happened to me on the stage, it's as if he knew. And when I think about it here now, um, 40 years later, I can picture it, tact, tact, you know, every, everything about it, the smell, the tactful, the, every single emotion, it, that's how strong it was. So it, if you think about your life as kind of like a film, that was the moment, and I can picture his face, and, and it was like, okay, if you believe in God or the universe or whatever power, something was there to protect me, to teach me, to send me, on my journey, and 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 every every single thing in my life, everything changed that moment. Just just from him telling me my fingering was crap. And and so you know when when I do my uh, meditations and and my when I thank the universe, uh, I feel um, way more blessed than just having great gigs and been lucky and having a lot of good friends and having the usually the funds I need and all the usual material stuff. But, uh, but I feel lucky because someone has given me these, uh, these signposts, you know, Mike? The, 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 the thing is you can see a sign and not pay attention. You can run it over in your car. You can pay attention and not go in. And, and, and so I think more than the signpost was the realization that I need to pay attention to the signs.
Thank you. Well, you know, when you have uh, 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 people in your life like uh, your father or uh, Mr. Levitt, you know, you you become sensitive to those signposts. And, you know, Jamie, your life speaks volumes that you're a man that does pay attention to the signposts. And uh, it, it, it inhabits your music um, because you have a career that, you know, people uh, – pay attention to like you say it's it's kind of coupled to the to the celebrity status of your work because you've played with so many great musicians but it seems like in that moment with uh, your teacher that it really it, it was kind of a beginning of grounding you so that your your not only did your music become more real to the audience and to yourself but it seems like that it really impacted your your, uh, your personal life in a big way. I mean, I can only imagine that you you have a number of people like this, and maybe it's maybe that was the beginning of of where you were more present to have that sense of gratitude and have that sense of appreciation for how extraordinary lucky you are in uh, being able to make great music with these great musicians. And, uh, you know, what I take away from it, Jamie, is that, you know, I, I've only seen you a, a few moments uh, at the end of a, a couple of shows that I've witnessed uh, mm. you perform at. But you're so very, so very gracious to people. Uh, it seems Thank like you. you never meet a stranger. You, you, you tend to uh, really make people uh, feel that, that sense of love and joy. And it's not only communicated through your music, but it's also communicated through the way you interact with people on the road or just simply when you're uh, uh, talking to somebody on the, on the street, you know, maybe with your, uh, your students there at uh, Snow College, uh, the School of Music there in Utah. You know, I, we're almost out of time because we're oh, just wow. about at an hour. Holy cow. And I could, I know, I know we've been talking, uh, well, you've been talking and it's been fantastic, but I want to hear a little bit about the school that uh, you're a part of in Utah because you're living in, uh, in northern Utah. Tell me a little, about this, little bit about the school. Yeah, it, it's, it's a wonderful place. The, the guy that got me involved is a, an amazing musician, guitarist. His name is Rich Dixon. Um, people have seen him. He used to do the Marie, uh, Donnie and Marie show for years and years, and uh, he's a big session player here. And uh, I, I kind of set up my own clique here in Salt Lake because there, there is, it's, it's a, well, I, I want to do this in the friendliest way I can do it. It's very clicky. Um, the, the first day I moved to Salt Lake, I felt like a big deal. I was doing Seinfeld and 10 other shows, and I walked into a studio to introduce myself, to make myself available to their studio work, and... They told me straight out, they said, look, we're a big fan of yours. Would you sign my albums? I said, sure. Then they told me, look, they, they don't have any work for me because they grew up with uh, three guitar players here, and that's who they feed. And uh, if there's ever, if, if, they, if all three of them ever get sick, they'll call me. I mean, in Los Angeles, it was completely different. I mean, I broke into the biggest scene, and for a while, it bothered, bothered me here. But somewhere along the line, I became friendly with this Rich Dixon who, I, who, who is a wonderful friend and I admire greatly as a musician and a person. And he introduced me to this uh, Snow College, which uh, is a f full uh, university-style college. It's been here since the end of the 1800s. 
Um, the music program is a is part of a, what's called Horn H O R N E School of Music, and uh, at one point was a satellite school for Juilliard. So, yeah, yeah. So we had um, uh, a bunch of the the faculty from Juilliard visiting us on a regular basis. We got equipment through Juilliard. Um, and uh, it became quite a quite a place. Um, I'm not sure what our uh, what the situation is with with Juilliard at the moment, but uh, when I started, it sure was, and uh, they still do trips to Juilliard and do things. But we were a full out satellite of them before. Uh, the professors are great. Um, the jazz program is great. They have a wonderful classical program and vocal thing. And uh, I'm very, very happy there. Um, I had taught at Guitar Institute, uh, GIT, uh, in, in Hollywood for many years. And that was a great gig. But this, this is a whole different thing. Um, I'm teaching. I have seven students, um, six students, sorry, that are all going for their bachelors. So I can't wing it at all. I've got to prepare. Uh, in fact, I teach tomorrow, so I've got about five hours of prep to do. Um, and um, very proud of them, very, very proud. And then I lead a combo, which is a commercial combo. They, they do uh, like classic rock and other stuff, but I don't just lead them. I teach them about uh, production, about contracts, about uh, even what to do, what, 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 what the difference is between mechanical royalties and regular royalties, um, everything that, uh, that would pertain to their growth once they're out of school. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful experience. It, it, it's, it's a great school. It's, it's in a little place called Ephraim, Utah, which is uh, 90 miles from my home. I love the trip. It's 80 miles an hour almost right. the whole way. It's gorgeous. I mean, that's the, that's yeah. the... Yeah, it's real nice. I mean, you go through a canyon, and there's two little towns on the way, uh, one called Moroni, and uh, for those people who know anything about the Mormon religion, that... That's a big uh, part of that, Moroni, and Fountain Green, another little town, and then you come to this Ephraim, which is where the college is, and it's, it's just fantastic. I mean, it's uh, also with my life here, with the, it, it's been thankfully, thank you, universe, it always seems to be busy, plus I have 15 pets to keep me busy, as you know. How's, so, uh, uh, how's your nice new uh, attendee uh, in your home, Mia? Mia, thank you. She's doing well, or he. I don't know what, what it is. Um, with parakeets, the thing is with parakeets is that they're, uh, what do they call that part of the beak? Darn. Uh, the seer. It's called a seer. It's the top of the beak. Um, if it's, uh, if, let's see if I have this backwards. If, anyway, if it's pink, it's a girl, or if it's blue, it's a girl. And it's, uh, they're one of the only one of the parrots you don't really have to do DNA tests on. Problem is when the seasons change, <clears throat> their their sears and their beaks can also change. So I'm really not positive she's a girl. Um, my other parakeet, Piccolo, uh, was much more taken by the last two, who were girls, but they, they're friendly. Mia's doing great. She loves her freedom. Thank you oh, for well, asking. <laughs> I, um, I always loved uh, uh, getting a little insight on your. Uh, on your saga of the, of the of the birds and the animals, it's. I, I I was just telling a good friend of mine tonight. I says, you know, I just interviewed a musician that had uh, goats 
and Lambs oh. in his uh, in his uh, studio the other day, and the, the name of his studio is called the Cozy Ark. So I said, I got a I got oh, for- a theme going here. I'm interviewing musicians that are kind of like Doctor Doolittle thing here. So you know, I want to ask you. My studio, my studio is called Zoo Studio, so you know. <laughs> See, I, I don't know how this is happening, and and I, all I have yeah. is a pet rock. So, you know, I wanted to I wanted Perfect. to ask one more thing, Jamie, before we call it quits here. And before we call it quits, I want to thank you very much for the honor of being oh, with you. Thank you so much, Jamie. The honor is all mine, sir. This has just been a joy to uh, hear about uh, your uh, uh, your journey through your music and your life. But I had to ask you about Milagro Studio. And uh, you were you were mentioning a little bit uh, about some of your love of Hispanic music. What was yes. it like uh, hanging with Gloria Trevi? Well, uh, I can tell you a little quick quick bitty. Um, I was working the her producer's uh, name was Sergio Andrade. I'm sure if you know that music, I was doing all the top Hispanic records. I probably did. 20 a year, maybe. Uh, Jose Jose and all these rap artists and disco and whatever. Um, and then Sergio Andrade told us that uh, Gloria Trevi was like the Michael Jackson of Mexico. She had her own television show, her own radio show. She had a calendar. She Millions of people come to see her. And uh, I got hired as a studio musician, a triple scale to do her album. So... I did her album, and I, 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 it was like Jimmy Johnson on bass and Vinnie Calyuda on drums. It was really a something else, man, in those days. Did you go to school and, with Vinnie? Uh, yes. Uh, in fact, Vinnie was my roommate in L.A. for six months. Um, we lived in a, in a house that I rented. He lived oh, with me. Okay. He, had no, he had no place to live, so I took him <laughs> in. Um, things, things are different now. I love Vinnie. Um, but yes, Vinny was uh, my roommate, and, a, and he still is a dear friend. Um, so I'll tell you the story about Gloria. So we did the albums, and then I did a little bit of the touring. Um, very strange to tour with her, because they did what's called Palenque. Uh, these are concerts in the, in the villages that had chicken fights. Yeah. Uh, cock yeah, fights. Right. And they would, they would have 5,000 people in a theater, and I would be in the dressing room warming up the guitar with chickens all around, um, pecking each other to death sometimes. And I, as an animal lover, this was killing me. I could, they put the rate, you know, I don't even want to get into it. But um, we did a bunch of that stuff. We did some big concerts, you know. Anyway, the, the story I want to tell you was Sergio Andrade, if you know anything about the history of Gloria Trevi, I think he's in jail for the rest of his life. He, uh, he did some very bad things, and he made slaves out of uh, the, the background singers, the girls, and uh, Gloria was signed to him for a long-term contract and was a bit of a slave to him. And so his rule was that none of the musicians could sleep with the girls or kiss them or do anything with them. And he proved that one day by coming into my room with a gun and shooting all the lights in my hotel room. Um... In Mexico City, he wanted to make sure that I didn't uh, have sex with any of the girls. I mean, they, especially in Mexico, they had a Mexican band and me. Or we brought Bob Leatherbarrow, the great drummer, uh, and uh, maybe once in a while a bass player from up here, depending on if we were playing in uh, you know, Guadalajara at the, the, the Civic Theater there, and it was 15,000 people, whatever. Right. 
But uh, it was a great experience. I did five years with her, and uh, it was nice. But and and having been her guitar player opened the door to like every pop artist in Mexico was trying to get me on their album, um, and uh, it was so, it was a brilliant time. Player, Mike, it was wonderful. Uh, Jamie, the 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 last thing I wanted to ask you was there a particular uh, uh, guitarist uh, that you know might have been from South America. Uh, Central America, you know, like for me, I was really into Egberto, Egberto Gismonti. Oh, and, sure. And I really love that kind of playing. Was there anybody uh, that grabbed your attention in uh, uh, in that way that uh, you can talk about as maybe a way to kind of conclude today? Yeah, um, the, the, the truth of the matter is that my job for all the records I did in Florida and Mexico was that of being a rock star, uh, being the Los Angeles tier one studio musician. So they never wanted me to, to do anything that was influenced by any Hispanic music. Um, it was me and, uh, or it was Mike Landau. I'm sure you've heard of Mike Landau. And uh, sometimes Michael Thompson and me were the three guys who, who did all the pop records. Um, they never wanted us to play anything that was... Uh, uh, remotely Latino. Uh, later on, I worked for and still work for and best friends with a guy named Daniel Indart, who is Latin music specialist. And his company is brilliant. He brought uh, uh, Hispanic stuff to Anglo companies. For example, we were doing jingles for Carl's Jr. and for Wells Fargo and McDonald's and on and on and on. Uh, where these companies didn't know who to look to to have um, a mixture of Anglo and Hispanic stuff. And in that case, once in a while, um, he would play me something from Argentina or Brazil and have me kind of emulate it in the back, but always with the Anglo stuff on top. So unlike your uh, influence by, by there, I didn't have to do anything that was actually from there. Yeah, I mean, I guess the reason I ask that question is because as a pianist, you know, uh, over the last year I've been I've been preparing a uh, 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 a, a classical uh, program that I haven't I haven't done that kind of music in thirty years. You know, I mean, I sure. I, I walked away from the classical music world. I I mean, I love that music, but I didn't want to make a living that way anymore. But uh -huh. I guess as I get into my fifties, I'm kind of drawn to this music. But I've been listening to like Julian Bream and and some of those great guitar players, and I've been listening to the way they interpret music, and then I try to play it in a, in a pianistic fashion. Uh, so I was just, you know, I guess it's where my question was coming from, is like, do you listen to music uh, just simply for pure enjoyment, and, and uh, maybe, you, maybe you read things uh, when you do have time. I know you're a busy guy, you, but do you, you read things for that are just for fun? You know, Mike, what I think what's going to be uh, taken as horrible... Um, <laughs> uh, because this has actually happened before when I've done Guitar Player Magazine and other stuff like that. They're either astonished or disappointed. Uh, the truth is, I don't listen to music for enjoyment. Um, I listen to your album for enjoyment, I must say. I'm not just trying to flatter the host, but it came at a time where, I, where my girlfriend was here. We listened, and I listened again. But uh, I, don't, I only turn on music to help me produce my next day's work, which I've heard from other musicians. Man, that's pretty sad. 
Uh, and the, the truth of the matter is, Mike, if I go to a concert, which is like I just went to as guests of John Anderson to the Yes Show. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, and I think it's different because John is a dear friend now. I mean, truly a dear friend. And I, I took an interest, but I can't go to concerts because the minute I get to a concert, I analyze the orchestration. Uh, I even take pieces of paper. I write down ideas. I can't enjoy... Uh, I, I, you know, it, it comes off kind of weird. It's not that I don't enjoy music. I mean, the other day, my brother sent me a video of the band Knower. You know the band Knower? Nope. Oh, no, wait a minute. Maybe I you do know. Check? But anyway, tell, tell me about it. Anyway, it was, I mean, I was blown away with what I saw. It was a YouTube video. It's three, four minutes long. It's beautiful. And, and I actually bought one CD in the last 10 years, which was Dirty Loops. But I, I don't, when, when I'm in the car, I listen to, uh, I don't know, talk radio or whatever. Um, and uh, because, you know, like today, today I did in the morning, I had an assignment for CBS, which was to uh, compose something in the style of Justin Timberlake. And then in the afternoon, I had uh, <clears throat> a recording, mixing, mastering for a, a guy who I've written many things with in Arizona, which was a song about the, the monuments in Washington for the dead soldiers. And so I listened to a couple of military things just to be influenced by that. And he's a country artist, so I listened to some of that. But I, 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 don't, I think I have like six CDs in the house. I, I, I don't have time to listen to music. I'm always working. Right. Well, I mean, I, in a way, I can really relate to this because when, you, when you're incredibly creative as a vocation, I'm sure there was a time in your life much earlier in your uh, in your education that you probably listened to tons of music, but now that you're you're, you're living uh, 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 or let me rephrase it, you you have a career that spans many decades. You know, maybe that's the way you decompress. You're you're listening to maybe Terry Gross on NPR, and you're just listening to an interview of something that has nothing to do with music. You're just because that's the way you kind of uh, turn it off for a little bit because you can't go to the concerts anymore uh, because you're always in kind of analytical techniques mode. And I can understand. It's kind that. of a combination. I, totally I mean, it, it, like again, it's it's a bit difficult to explain because it's not that I don't enjoy. It. Like I say, my my brother Randy sends me videos like. YouTube stuff, because I don't search YouTube. I don't, I don't hang out on the internet. Um, people on Facebook think that I'm there 24 hours a day, and I have software that posts for me. I mean, I have a separate um, social media business I do, so I've got all kinds of advanced stuff. And then when I can get on at two in the morning, I respond there because that's the most important part of social media. You know, is responding and letting people know they're being listened to and. Uh, and enjoying other people. So I, I do do that, but initially the software posts for me. Um, and, uh, I mean, it's, it's this world, right? So, like, like uh, in July, I had the, the great, great, super, super honor of do, being part of the tribute for Alan Holsworth uh, at the Iridium in New York. And so for three weeks, I listened to Holsworth because uh, I, I listened to stuff I had never heard, any like hardly any of it. I mean... I had heard it, but I never heard it like I was going to enjoy it. It was just amazing. But then I said, well, I wonder what he's doing, because I, I have to perform this, you know. So 
after I after a while I heard Holdsworth and it was like four in the morning. I was like, okay, let's see what this was. Oh, this is a guy making believe he's Holdsworth. Let's watch that. So I end up watching some stuff, and um, so I yeah, it's not like I don't listen at all. It's just, I mean, I, it's it's weird. I've got the the APB album here, Anderson Ponty, John Anderson and Jean Luc, the band we did before. I've got the yeah. I've got the disc here on my table, and I've never heard it ever. <laughs> I've never listened to it once. I have well, I have no idea if it sounds good or not. It it, it's, it sounds very good. Uh, you know, I well, you know, you can take my word for it. But you know, Jamie, I can't think of a better way to uh, conclude today's uh, conversation. And once again, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank today. you. Thank you. And and you know. All I can wish you is the best of luck with uh, whatever's in your future and uh, get outside and enjoy that beautiful Utah mountain air and uh, hang out with uh, Mia and Bosley and, and Beanie and Piper and Pikaloo and Mia. You're really good at this, aren't you? <laughs> uh, well, you know, the thing is, is that I know that that is part of what gives you pleasure is hanging out with your animals and that's another way of decompressing and uh you know like you say it it's those signposts that you pay attention to but you know what i i, I really feel that it, it's so important to learn from the universe what can you learn from a tree what can you learn from from the animals i mean i i have uh, strange animals compared to other people i've got uh, a master bedroom with six chinchillas free to wreck the room and all the rest of it but then you know when i'm done with uh my night's work after we close our interview, I go in there and I sit and I let them walk all over me and I, I wonder, what, what is it they can teach me? You know, where another person say, well, these are darn rodents who are destroying your room. And uh, that's not what I get from them. You know, I, I get that they, they're, they're valid and valuable and I need to learn their language. So it's like writing a new song, Mike. It's like, it's like a, a brand new symphony. And, and just in addition to what we, before we close about listening to music. One thing I do do quite a bit since I'm responsible for orchestration and arranging is I get scores and I listen to classical music. Everything from from Bach to Schumann to WC to Horst to whatever it is, and I study the scores. Um, and, and in that way, yes, I'm still studying, but I'm also uh, enjoying that music. So... Um, for me, classical music is is the place that I think I'll end up someday, which is the place you said you left. <laughs> yeah, and I'm kind of come first full circle myself, you know, because I'm you know I'm reading Copeland scores and oh. and, uh, and I and I get reminded of like oh I really did like this music and I I shouldn't forget <laughs> it. it's a sign yeah. it's a signpost that I should pay attention to myself. Well, Jamie, this has been wonderful, and that's it. An extraordinary interview with Jamie Glazer. Hearing him talk about his father and his teachers is so touching to me. Be sure to visit jamieglazer.com to learn more about his action-packed life. And you can buy his book, Hear the Silence, at Amazon. 
The Jean-Luc Ponty live album that you heard today was from my own vinyl collection and was originally recorded in 1979. I have to pinch myself that I finally got to meet one of the musicians whose musical artistry changed forever my perspective as a young musician living in the New Mexico desert. My name is Mike Dawson, and I am the silent pianist. You can find me at my band's website, RoarElectra.com, or at my Twitter, at Mike Dawson Music. And you can find the Silent Pianist podcast anywhere podcasts are found. Goodbye, old friends. I am the Silent Pianist. See you next time.